Hey there. This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of our Story Story Night family, where you hear bleep-worthy stories on an unblushing theme, told live at the Adults Only Visual Arts Collective. Thank you, Jessica Holmes. This is Jody Eichelberger, Artistic Director of Story Story Night. On this episode, we celebrate LGBTQ Pride Month with stories from three different summer seasons. We will revisit stories from 2015 to 2019. Each came from a show with different themes, but they all celebrate diversity, acceptance, activism, and unashamed self-pride. First up, from Painting the Roses Red in 2019, Noi Tanao. It's late night stories. So when I was in junior high, um, we got a Sega Genesis and cable TV. So I started watching a lot of MTV. They kept playing these ads over and over. You, do you remember those black and white ones with Kate Moss and Marky Mark? Um, I was at the mall one day, and I was attracted to this T-shirt. It was white and had two black letters on the chest with two words across it. It said, Calvin Klein. I had $20, the t-shirt was 20 bucks, so it was meant to be, I purchased it. When I went to school the next day, all the kids had thought I was so cool. I figured out like a trick of not to like feel so isolated anymore because I was so different. That shirt allowed me to cover myself up and not stand out so much in school full of red roses. So I then saved all my allowance, and I would beg my dad to take me to the mall and buy me some new clothes all the time. My dad, who is the kindest, most hardest working man I've ever met, um, before I was born, he fell in love with a single mother with three very young kids in Laos, a country that was being torn apart by political oppression and war. Um, Officials in Thailand had told the world that if Laotians had escaped to any other neighboring countries, they would be forcibly sent back, and if they were forced to sent, if they were sent back, they would be shot. Um, with the UN helping with camp bills and Thailand enjoying the praise from the world of their hospitality towards um, refugees, the camps became secure. So Thailand was the answer. My parents had to find a fisherman with a canoe large enough to fit my mom, my dad my two older sisters, my brother, and my aunt. So in the middle of the night, they gave that Thai fisherman all the gold that they had, and he got them safely across the border. Nine months later, I was born in the Naple base camp. <laughs> so when you're in a refugee camp, um, getting a sponsorship to go to another country is basically a lottery system. We didn't know when our family would be chosen or where we'd go for asylum. We, so we just had to wait in the camps all the time. We were there a total of five years. Um, since I was born in camp, there was no documentation about my age or any official paperwork. So in order for kids to go to school, um, you had to reach around your head and touch your other ear like this. <laughs> um, they did that to all the young kids. Uh, my sister said I would reach for hours trying to touch my ear. Could everyone like do that? Are you guys capable? Because yeah, so that means you guys could all go to school in camps. We could go together. I was never able to touch my ear before we left camp. <laughs> so finally, we arrive in America, 
Pocatello, Idaho. Sounds pretty exotic, right, compared to Thailand? That's where our sponsors are from, so that's where we went. Um, the first day of kindergarten, the only English words I knew was hello and goodbye. Back in the 80s, we didn't have ESL classes, um, so for a couple hours of the day, they would pull me out of class and put me in the room with the special ed kids. I start to feel very vulnerable um, and frustrated because I could not communicate with anybody. Um, so the only thing that I could do with a piece of paper and a pencil was to draw, but that was not um, cool with my family. Um, so when I was seven, I noticed that like on the days that we would go to school, like all the neighborhood kids would be gone for a good portion of the day. So I was curious. I asked where they went. The only thing I really understood was they were going to school on Sunday. So I told my parents, hey, should I be going to school on Sunday? They're probably there to like learn the culture better or I can like learn the language and get all these special ed classes. So I asked my neighbors if I could go. My parents were okay with it. They took me to the local um, thrift store, bought me like a white shirt and some slacks. So that's what I wore at these meetings with my flip flops. Um, <laughs> When I went, like, I didn't really know what they were saying, but they always had, like, candy and, like, cinnamon rolls and baked goods. So I was like, yeah, I'll totally go. This is cool. I'm down with this. Uh, and then, like, a couple times a week, they would send over these two guys over to a neighbor's house. They had, like, crisp white shirts and backpacks. So I would go meet with them, and they would try to tell me the words of Jesus Christ, but I didn't know what they were talking about either because I didn't understand the language well enough. <laughs> so when I was eight, the neighbor had dunked me underneath some cold water in front of a room full of strangers I didn't know. It took me a few years before I realized that I was baptized into the Mormon religion. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... So when I figured it out, I stopped going to church, so there's like no more baked goods for me on Sundays. <laughs> um, in junior high, I was like sick and tired of rewriting every single spelling word 10 times over and staying in during recess. Um, and I didn't want to be associated with the other kids that had to do that, so I would study my ass off. I did whatever I had to do to memorize how to spell those words, even if I didn't fully understand what they meant. I started doing really well in school. I brought my grades up. I realized that if I got really good grades, my parents would buy me whatever I wanted, and I could just draw my room all the time. Um, so I would keep drawing, do whatever I could, but then like, there was other parts of me that I didn't want to come out about. No, it wasn't about my sexuality. I didn't want to come out and tell my parents, I want to be an artist. You know, telling your Asian parents you want to be artists, that would not be acceptable. <laughs> My parents had worked so hard getting us into this country. They, like, risked their lives. So telling them that, like, no, there's no way. Um, so... Yeah, there's, and then there's other parts of myself that I suppressed, too. Yeah, I didn't want to come out about my sexuality, either, because I knew I'd be alienated again. So finally, like before my undergrad, I had taught myself how to paint. And then during my undergrad for my communications degree, I um, took a, a upper division art history class called World Arts. I loved it. Um, I got familiar with the faculty in the art department. 
And I had shown one of the pain instructors my artwork, and she said that she would waive the prereqs for me, put me in an intermediate, intermediate class because she thought I had potential. I knew that if I did this, I had to really excel in my academics. So I became the communications director's intern. I um, never got through, below a 3.8 GPA. I was always on a dean's list. Um, and so then I was able to do my art, and my art started taking off. Um, I was winning awards, I was getting money for school, um, and then my teacher, she um, wanted me to have a senior art show, which was uncommon because I was not an art um, major. So I agreed, and then I was published in the local newspaper. The Idaho State Journal, um, asked if they can interview me for an article because I had won so many awards from the undergrad show. I was like, sure, why not? My parents don't read the newspaper. They're not going to find out. <laughs> but a neighbor had dropped off a copy on my parents' doorsteps. <laughs> so I went to my parents' house one day to do laundry. And my dad approached me. He's like, what is this? Is this is not what we sent you to school for. So I had to invite them to my art show. Inviting my parents to my senior show was like one of the hardest things I ever had to do. It was like coming out all over again. Um, my parents, when they showed up, my dad was very skeptical at first. Um, but after he saw all the, how much time I spent on my paintings, um, what hard work I put into it, all the support I had from my friends, my professors, and the community, he gave me a hug and he told me he was proud of me. So, <laughs> that was the first time in my life that I felt like it was okay to be myself. I no longer needed any more red paint. I didn't really need any more silly Calvin Klein shirts. <laughs> There's something else that I want to share with everyone here. Um, a lot of the paintings here in the gallery are mine. Um, every single one of my pieces shows a state of vulnerability. I'm having a really hard time sharing this story with everybody right now because I feel very vulnerable. <laughs> but instead of using it as a weakness, it's, I'm going to have it as a strength. Thank you. Thank you, Noe. Now we go back to the summer of 2018 with Yellow Light and guest host Minerva Jane. Edward Bowers! Let's get him up here! Hello. So I didn't know what I was coming to this evening, um, but I'm really glad I did. The Yellow Lights thing made it very clear that I was coming up here, if at all possible. I... I was born an only child to two parents very desperate for a child who'd lost one right before me. I came out, I was an Apgar 10, but very yellow. But it was a, it was a light yellow. <laughs> and so they're, they're concerned, they're going through all the tests, I'm perfectly healthy, everything's great. But <laughs> about four years later, I'm really sick. I'm in the hospital not gonna make it and they they're freaking out we live in salmon idaho there is just absolutely not a fucking way that this kid's gonna make it doctor says take him to missoula 
So we drive as quickly as we can. My mom's resuscitating me in the back seat of the car. And we make it to Missoula. And I wake up about seven days later in the hospital with a woman kneeling on my chest, stabbing me in the finger. And I was, that was kind of stupid. And I could smell Kentucky Fried Chicken out the window. I was like, oh. All right. I haven't ever had fast food before, but whatever that is, I'm going to eat it. Um, and so I find out that I have diabetes and that it's this whole thing. And it involves food, which pisses me off. Um, and this happened to be Christmas Eve night. And so I wake up, and Christmas was today, as far as I knew. And so we go home, and I pull out my stocking, and I start yanking candy out of it and shoving it in my mouth. And my mom immediately turns around, and this is in 1987, when they didn't know a whole lot about diabetes the way they do now. And my mom is just like, oh, shit, he's dead. So she's freaking out and rushes me to the hospital. and like, no, 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 give him some insulin. He'll be fine. OK. So we make this mad rush to get me to Missoula. We make this mad rush to figure out my diabetes. We get it wrangled in. And now we're desperately seeking, what does this kid do? I'm so sick. I live in a small town. I'm terribly awkward publicly. And so they put me in the performing arts. They're like, OK. <laughs> Put him on stage. <laughs> the first, the first <laughs> play I was in, the director immediately said, put this kid in dance. He's the most awkward human being on stage I've ever seen. So I do 10 years of ballet really terribly. I mean, awful, but I could sing. So I stood up in front of the yellow lights um, up above me. And once those lights were on me, I wasn't diabetic. I wasn't gay in a small town. I wasn't awkward. I was just me on stage in the dark. Um, well, I wasn't in the dark, but they were. <laughs> and <laughs> I thought that was pretty awesome. And my only child just bloomed within me. And so I went away to college to be a performing artist and hated it. Hated it, because I suddenly realized, as great as I was in Salmon, I wasn't. I wasn't the caliber that was going to get me enough money to pay for diabetes. <laughs> so I went to beauty school because I was gay. And it was, it was 2001, and that's what she did. And so, <laughs> so I bleached my hair and went to beauty school. And talk about light yellow, this was more of kind of a marigold situation. <laughs> I, I spent a majority of my beauty school time with that same goddamn awful marigold hair. Every picture, every picture. Um, black eyeliner all over me, craft glitter. I was, I was fly, you know. I was also 17. And so I'm going through beauty school. I'm trying to figure my shit out. Um, I'm not a performing artist anymore. I'm still diabetic. I'm smoking cigarettes, and I'm trying to drink, and I'm smoking weed, also really badly, by the way, <laughs> because I love food a lot, and I have diabetes, which makes it a little complicated. But I figured it out when I started smoking pot. I was like, I can be vegetarian, and I can just everything in the world as long as I only have vegetarian food around me. So I did that for a while, and then realized it made, I, did, I just stopped smoking weed. <laughs> 
So seven, uh, about 15, 14 years later, uh, my life is falling apart. I am poor. I can't afford my illness. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm drinking a lot. And those same shades of yellow that I was born with showing up on me. Um, the emotions were showing up on me. I'd had a relationship end with death, which wasn't something I'd anticipated. I always thought I would be the first one to go. <laughs> and I thought I might be the next one to go. And I sat in a bathtub full of Cabernet, which is what I call it, but it was about two and a half bottles of Cab and no hope. And I saw a friend post on Facebook that he was doing an Ironman. And I was like, hold up. If that fat, fat, drunk motherfucker can do an Iron Man, <laughs> I can fucking do an Iron Man. And so 16 weeks later, I did. Um, I, learned to, I learned to ride a bike. <laughs> I knew I could swim because I was a scout in salmon, which was really popular. Um, and I, I learned to run six miles and then 12 and then 13. Anyway, did an Ironman, changed my life. I then started back to school. And all of these things just kept changing in front of me, and it was like the lights, you know? It was just, it was green now, and all of a sudden it was yellow, and I didn't know, do I go? Do I stop? I'm fairly cautious now because I've made all these fucking mistakes that have really sucked, but now I'm here. And so I just decided to go for it, and I went back to school. And went back to school and I was like, I'm a fucking idiot and I'm gay and so it's supposed to be beauty school but I can't make enough money. And so I started testing and I started testing and testing and going to school and liking it and I ended up in this engineering program. And um, now I'm there and now I am bordering on 35 years old. I have 17 years worth of doing hair under my belt. I am not a skinny little alcoholic anymore. I am a fairly fit diabetic running, you know, a fitness campaign for diabetics trying to promote healthy um, life. And all I can say is whether it's yellow lights or light yellow, <laughs> you can always slow down and take stock of what's happening, but don't ever stop. Thank you, Edward. Now moving back to the summer of 2015. The theme, Purgatory. The storyteller, Nicole LeFevre. You know, there was some point at which I realized that perhaps trying to spend the night in a Senate coat closet was maybe not a perfect plan. In fact, it might not even be brilliant. Um... You know, there was a lot of speculation about why I would do that. And, and most of it centered on the idea that I had gone in to spy on the senators. And as a former state senator, I can tell you that that is a really embarrassing charge to have leveled at you. And, and I was a little mortified by that idea. And I want to make sure that, you know, you understand why it was I went in that closet. Um, this is... This is a closet I was familiar with when I was a senator. It was a bare closet, fairly large for a closet, probably that size there, you know, maybe 12 by 5. It was pretty big. And it had nothing in it. 
at the time. Um, on the day I decided that I needed to spend the night in this coat closet, I had a very important mission, and that was to get um, somewhere around 40 protesters into the Senate floor to stand silently, peacefully, and respectfully with one hand over their mouths in protest until the Senate agreed to go back down to the committee rooms and work on a bill to add the words and include sexual orientation and gender identity in Idaho's human rights laws. So in case you don't know, in Idaho you can still be fired, evicted, or refuse service in a restaurant just because you're gay or transgender. To this day, marriage ruling had nothing to do with that. The Supreme Court didn't affect that. It's still true. And so I promise you we had tried just about everything before I hid in the Senate closet. <laughs> we really had. I'd spent years trying to educate my colleagues to put a face on the gay community. And, you know, I had gotten to know them, gotten to know how many of them themselves had gay kids and um, other gay family members. And I had tried to ple plead and reason with them. And after more than a decade, they had not moved. They wouldn't even hold a hearing on the bills. So I guess you could say that we resorted, about 120 of us, to some pretty drastic measures. We would stand in the Senate, and we had done so probably four times already, and wait, telling them we weren't moving until they started work on the bill. Well, our success in standing on the Senate floor um, was really dependent on the fact that the first time we did it was the first action we'd ever done. And we made it all the way to what I would consider kind of the, the pinnacle of targets, um, that Senate floor, only because they didn't expect us. So this was February, late February, and by this time, they didn't let me anywhere near that Senate floor. <laughs> they really didn't. They, you know, I, here I am, a former senator with an arrest record now, and, and Sarah Jane McDonald, who is the sergeant at arms and in charge of the decorum and the security of the Senate, was charged with making sure that me and none of the other 44, many of whom are in here, Madeline Lee Taylor and, and um, Caleb Hansen and many others are in here, I'm sure, um, didn't make it anywhere near that Senate floor. So to get there was quite something. And I went in very early and managed to get in um, with a little assistance from a sitting legislator who will remain nameless. Um, in fact, this legislator didn't even know that he, she was assisting me to the Senate floor. <laughs> and at this point, this may be some surprise to he or she. <laughs> However, um, that assistance was good. I got myself into this beautiful lounge behind the Senate. Now, the Senate is this, this floor with these rows of chairs where we sit and we vote and we debate the bills. Well, behind it is this formal sitting room with two gas fireplaces and fancy antique furniture, and no one ever uses it. Like, it sits empty all year long. I mean, literally empty all year long. So I knew once I got in there, I'd, ha I'd be able to take my time, and I knew there were no cameras back there. Um, I guess some teenagers had broken in and spent the night at one point partying and nobody knew, so that was a good sign there were no, there were no cameras. So I got in there and I opened up this door to this closet and to my surprise, 
there was now a um, kind of like a clothing rack in the back, and there were um, garment bags, most of them very clear see-through. Um, one or two of them had a little opaqueness to them. And a shelf with some cookies and um, bottled water on it, and I was a little grateful for that, and you'll find out why later. But um, I, I had a little backpack on my back, and in it was, uh, it was stuffed full of things, let's just say. Um, I had a Spanakopita from the Flying M. I had a grapefruit. Just don't even talk to me about how practical any of these items are, or how much they smell when you're in a confined space. I had um, some tea, a bottle of water, and a Altoids box crammed with little magnets, pieces of metal, pieces of tape, like a tampon I could stuff in a lock. Because, and here's the key part, and it is why I was going into the closet in part, I was going to jam the door on the stairway to the back Senate so that the protesters could get up in the morning and get into the chamber and we could protest. Because every time we'd tried, Sarah Jane, had caught us and stood in the way and even charged people with things if they touched her. So we were really careful. We didn't want to have to mess with Sarah Jane. And if we were there early enough, we wouldn't have to. So I was going to stay all night so we could be there before she was there. And I was probably the only, you know, who knows who could get back there and would know all that. So I was like, okay, it's going to be me. And then I was like, what happens if I get, you know, like caught? And thanks to the team of awesome people, who lead, add the four words, they're like, dude, you're a gay person, you're in a closet? You got this. I was like, okay, okay. It still seemed really bad, I gotta tell you. I mean, I really knew they were gonna be upset about this. So I get in the closet and I realize, okay, this closet is now used. It's, it's no longer unused. It's a used closet. There's coat rack. There's, there are a bunch of shoes all over the floor. So I get in there. I squinch down in this, like, so if the door, if I were facing the door, um, I would be way to the right, uh, facing the door, facing out. I'd be way to the right in this corner against the wall. And so I kind of was behind the shelf. And then there were garment bags. And they really didn't really cover me, but I kind of pulled my knees up and tried to arrange them so that they would. And um, I punched off the light. It's one of those cool push-button lights, you know, the old kind. They're so cool. And I was just kind of got a little pleasure to turn it on and off a couple times. But um, I, I got in there, and I squinched down, and I got all settled, and hours passed because it was like 6 in the morning. And I actually at one point realized I needed to go out and have a meeting with the Speaker of the House because I had a question for him, and I felt really bad if we were going to protest before I asked him. So I went out, and I managed to get back in. <laughs> And I, I, I then sat, and at some point, the, the Senate started getting ready to convene, and somebody had, had turned on a loudspeaker so I could hear what was going on and stuff. And all of a sudden, someone came in and opened the door. And I just froze. The light came on, and I just was just like, oh. And the person you could hear taking off a coat, and it was like a gray down jacket or something like that, a long one, and, and he hung it up on, on a hook, and, and then he left, and I realized, oh, he's going to have to come back and get that. That's not good. And when I thought about it, and I thought about this giant sigh he let out before he left, I realized it was Lieutenant Governor Brad Litter having to deal with the Senate. <laughs> so, Brad, it's all right. We know it's not always fun. There were tough bills on the agenda that day, and I'm sure you didn't want to have to break a tie. He might have had to, actually, now that I think about it. I can't remember. Okay, so I am in this, this corner, and I know that the lieutenant governor is going to have to come back. 
I can hear some of what's going on in terms of just that speaker that's on. But I can tell over the course of the hours, and I started to get on Facebook. We had a little bit of a plan going. Um, and, and, and some of my crew was texting me. Caleb, who's here somewhere, where is he? He was, in a, he was supposed to get into another closet as a backup, because we always have backup plans. <laughs> and so I wasn't, it was clear that he was maybe having trouble doing that, and also clear that they thought that I really was still in the building. They really hadn't ha caught me on the cameras leaving, so I started posting pictures of a baby donkey as if I were out with a baby donkey. I didn't say I was, but you might think I was if you saw the posts. Didn't lie. Really, I just, you know, make your own assumptions. Pictures of baby donkeys. They weren't time-stamped. Um, so I, I sat in the closet, and I, I, um, I waited. And every now and then, someone would come in, and you could tell they were talking on their phone. But this is a closet in a really, you know, a couple hundred-year-old building with really thick um, wooden doors, and I'm back under garment bags, and I can't hear what they're saying. It's kind of, and if they walk close, I'd hear a word or two, and then they'd walk away. And, and I was just like, okay, if I can make it to 5 o'clock, I know they're going to adjourn. They're debating bills. It's like getting a little intense and stuff. People are coming in, skipping votes, both Democrats and Republicans. Um, and um, I... I just, I'm, I'm waiting, and, and they break for lunch, and the door opens again, and the lieutenant governor gets his coat, and he leaves, and I'm like, oh, gosh. So I have a lunch break that I know is going to be pretty mellow, and I hope no one comes in. And um, so the afternoon session begins, and that is not always the case. Normally, they only meet in the morning for like an hour or two, and at lunch, they would have been done but it was very clear they were coming back for an afternoon session. So this is starting to get to be really near hell, but still very purgatory, because it is going to go on and on and on, because they're debating wolves. Wolves. That was the day they were debating wolves. I was screwed, really, to be quite honest. Um, I don't know how long that debate went on, but... At about 4.30, the Senate cellar closet door opened. The light came on, and Sarah Jane McDonald walked in to the closet. Now, am I keeping the decorum of the Senate? No, and I know this, and I'm pretty sure those are her shoes all around my feet, some of whom are, which are hiding my feet. And I am shaking so badly. I have sewing machine knee. You know how you get that like this? That I can tell I'm making the, the garment bags rustle. So I, 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 I try to hold still as hard as I can by pressing my knee against the back wall, just like, you know, steel. And the next thing you know, she's got the light on, and she's moving food into the closet, like tubs of things. They open the door wide, the pages come, they're coming in and out, and they're having a party outside the closet. I am not kidding you. And I know that this is possible because one day a year they do this. One day a year. Uh, it turns out that Senator Cameron makes really awesome salsa, both hot and mild. Um, Senator Sidaway makes a sheep cheese, I think it is. It's supposed to be really, really good as well, although they could have just been being nice. And I will say that once the door was open and the party was going on, I could hear what was being said outside. And they did actually talk about me 
and Caleb and everybody else and Madeline Lee Taylor in not always the most flattering fashion. Um, there was a complaint about the fact that now that we, wouldn't, they would, that we wouldn't look at them, we had started to call them, call them, to ask them. What were we asking them? We were asking them to show that our lives mattered, that the lives of young people like Maddie Beard and Ryan Zika, who had taken their lives in despair as young gay people in rural parts of Idaho, the people who every day live in silent fear that someone will discover they're gay and they'll lose their job, their apartment. They won't be able to do business in the town where they grew up. We asked them to say that our lives mattered. And they were annoyed we were calling. So I was in the closet because I wanted them to look at us the next morning. I wanted them to look us in the eye and see the beautiful people who stood before them. Straight grandmothers, clergy, Rabbi Fink, beautiful human beings, young and old, high school to age 80. Navy veterans like Madeline Lee Taylor, people who had sacrificed and suffered or who just cared and were willing to risk arrest and the cost of having a record that risk to their jobs, that risk to their futures, just so that, please, they would hear us. They would finally say in law that cruelty to us was wrong. So a little after 4.30, this party is going on. And they're laughing, and they're having a good time out there. And they're kind of like on break from debate, and they're going to go back to debate a little bit more, I think. Um, uh, I realize I've almost made it. Like, I have maybe an hour to go, and I'm home free. And I'll be in there, you know, for the night. Because they need to go home really soon because I have to pee. <laughs> and I had brought small Ziploc bags, but I had meant to bring large Ziploc bags. And when they're having a party and the lights are on in there, I'm not going to be peeing. It's not going to happen. And if they'd gone home, I knew the ways to get around back there to the bathroom and I would have been fine. Um, so I'm sitting, counting the minutes. I know that you know the heaven of freedom is just within reach. And Jerry Castoris walks in, and he is one of the staff. He works with Sarah Jane. And all of a sudden, I hear him picking up shoes, right by my feet, shoes. He's gathering shoes. And this is a going home gesture. like. You know, they had just kind of finished the wolf bill vote, and it was time to pick up shoes, I guess, and start to pack things. And the next thing you know is I feel this hand on my leg. And he starts back and goes, who's there? And he pushes back the garment bags, and I go, hey. <laughs> you know, kind of just like he expected me to be there, and here I was finally, and I was really glad he'd finally, you know, said hi, and... Wasn't it great? And he stood up and he turned off the light and closed the door. I was like, yes, I love this man. I really love this man. The next thing you know, though, the person they send in first is the Senate Minority Leader, my old kind of boss, Michelle Stennett from Ketchum. She is the, the head of Democrat. And she goes, so what you doing? <laughs> and I was like, Michelle, what do you think? You know, I, I've got to get my people in here. We want to make them 
look at us. We want to make them hear us. They need to end their silence. Pass the bill. She said, well, you have one choice. You going to stay? I said, I'm going to stay. She said, well, they all know you're here. I said, I'm just going to stay. So she left. She turned off the light, closed the door. And um, I sat. The next person to come in was Brent Hill. He's, he, he, I'm probably not his favorite person. You can put that mildly, like veins burst on his head when he sees me. Because he's the one who has decided that this bill isn't going to be heard. He doesn't believe that it's necessary to include gay and transgender people in our human rights law. In fact, he's like to pass a separate one that, that's different, kind of separate but equal, like the drinking fountains. And we don't want that. I don't think any of us want that. So he says, what are you doing? And I told him, you know what I'm doing. And I leaned down because my cell phone was dead and I was going to plug it in. I also had pulled out the little things to block the door because I kind of figured I could block the locks on my way out. And he said, why is your bag unpacked? And I said, my cell phone's dead? And he said, you need to leave. And I said, I know. And so I left. And Betsy Russell called from the Spokesman Review and she said, so you were in a Senate closet? I said, yeah. Closets are never safe for gay and transgender people. Thank you. And after 15 years, the Idaho legislature has still failed to add the words. But there was some good news this month when the Supreme Court ruled to protect gay and transgender rights in the workplace. I reached out to Nicole LeFevre for her reaction to this news, and she wrote, This still does not protect public accommodation, which is that thing that happens to us when people turn us away from businesses. So there is still work to be done. Thanks for listening. The Story Story Late Night theme song is by Ned Evett. Support this storied program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on SoundCloud, Facebook, and YouTube at Story Story Night. You can submit to be a featured storyteller by emailing story at storystorynight.org. Find our full archive of podcasts at soundcloud.com backslash storystorynight. <laughs>